Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changing Politics, the podcast where we have a look at the week's news and then do a deep dive on one important issue and try and find a practical way where we can make a difference. I'm Gronny Maguire, Yvette Cooper in the streets, Ed Miliband in the sheets. Basically, I've been told I make bed a lot like Ed Miliband. I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> anyway, I'm Marie Combe, the Napoleon of the London-based media community, in that I'm French and at some point I will probably try to take over the entire industry and have to be exiled in Elba. This week, I downloaded an app and just by doing that, I did my bit to help the problem of homelessness. At the end of the podcast, you'll find out how. But first, let's have a look at the week's news. And uh, I think we can actually start with Aaron Banks. Everybody's favourite Brexit bad boy. Well, yeah, so last week it was announced that Aaron Banks was under investigation by the National Crime Agency over questions of where exactly the funding for Leave.eu came from. But also, that came out, you know, I think a few days later, and for me that is the big news, apparently the movie Bad Boys of Brexit will no longer be happening. What? Apparently that story of Hollywood just dying to, <laughs> to make a movie about Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore and Nigel Farage was not true. I mean, aren't you absolutely heartbroken? Oh. You know, first Avengers, you know, will soon finish as a franchise and now this. This is awful. Where will Brad Pitt get his next Oscar nomination from now? And for some reason now picturing Benedict Cumberbatch playing Nigel Farage. <laughs> the opposite of a sexy dream. Do you think Aaron Banks thinks he can get away with all of this because he's so hot? <laughs> working for me. Um, so he's under investigation for misusing the data from the leave.eu campaign. Apparently there was email sent to people who signed up for to leave EU and now they sent it to an insurance company and now they're going to get fined because of it. Uh, I think that's that. And my understanding is that the other bit is that some of the money... It's unclear whether it came from Rock Services, which is Aaron Banks' company, which is based in Britain, mm. or from its parent company, Rock Holdings, which is based in the Isle of Man, which is actually illegal because obviously I think money from the Isle of Man cannot be used um, in elections in the UK. Many and Aaron Banks might have ended up in prison if he is found guilty for up to two years. Apparently there was also funding from a scissors company and a paper company as well. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, I was working on something being like either either Rock Holdings, Rock Services mm-hmm. or The Rock. <laughs> but it's sad. It's always the one who make you think, yep, it's definitely him, <laughs> who it turns out to be, isn't it? It's, yeah, I mean, it's one of those stories. Where I'm actually, to be honest, like nearly a bit bored of it. It just keeps coming back and back and back, you know, kind of like dodgy funding over the EU referendum. And I've, I have to say, I've basically stopped caring. Like, I feel like it would have to be a properly mad story for me to like really care like it'd have to be the level of like you know 
turns out the Brexit campaign was funded by Macron because, you know, he actually wanted to create an empire of Europe and actually invade the UK, something like there, maybe I would start caring. But I think that anything below that, I, I just would not. Or, like, or something really random being like, turns out this entire time, it was Zimbabwe. Like, <laughs> and then, you know, fine, but yeah, that's that. Can I just ask, uh, in your scenario, Macron trying to take over the world, is he topless while he's doing it, just so I have the right visual image? My legal team have advised me to not answer this question. So this week was a a first. A minister resigned from their post not to spend more time with their family or plotting the demise of Theresa May, but actually up for their principles. (laughs) I know, I can't believe a ministerial resignation, not because of Brexit. I'd forgotten it was even a thing that could happen in the world. Um, But yes, last week, Sports Minister Tracy Crouch uh, resigned over delays to new laws on fixed odds betting terminals. So if you're not entirely sure which side of this debate you should be on, just know that everyone's favourite MRA, Philip Davies, is pro-FOBT. So So these, these are fixed odds betting machines. And at the moment, people can spend... Uh, £100 every 20 seconds on these machines. And Tracy Crouch has been campaigning to lower that. The change was supposed to come in this budget where it was lowered to £2. And now this, this has been delayed for a year and she has resigned in protest. Yes, she has, and I sort of understand. So I think her thing was effectively... that I mean, A, this is something I think she feels generally strongly about, but B, my understanding at least is that she'd been promised that, you know, it would happen at the budget. But actually, I remember it being trailed in the press. And I think, you know, by the Treasury, like Treasury sources, etc., that, you know, FOBTs would, you know, would be heavy, more heavily, I guess, like regulated from this budget onwards, and then clearly didn't happen... But also, interestingly, she hinted in her resignation letter at the fact that basically some of the parties managed to convince the government to actually kind of like delay that move. And so fingers have been pointed at our best friend, friend of the podcast, <laughs> uh, Philip Davies, because he is someone who who was against, you know, the move to start with. But also, interestingly, has received, I believe the professional term is, a shit ton of hospitality <laughs> from bookies in general. Does he have his own sports direct mug in his local bookies? <laughs> <laughs> they call him the governor whenever he walks in. <laughs> but uh, but also, interestingly, that, yeah, other interesting fact about Philip Davies is that his partner is Esther McVeigh, who is in the cabinet, and it has been said that apparently Esther McVeigh was one of the people in cabinet meetings arguing against that change to FOBTs. And also, actually, like, she has gone through, you know, like, for example, Philip Davies went to the races. Um, I can't remember when, a few months ago, and that was, you know, all declared um, and everything. But his guest, the person who went with him, was Esther McVeigh. So it's not about saying, you know, this is definitely what happened or she did X because of Y. But clearly, I think it does raise some questions over, you know, over what happened there and, you know, how those decisions were taken, both by, by, you know, kind of Philip Davies, Esther McVeigh, but also number 10 in the Treasury. Is there any moral justification for delaying this because it seems like these machines are so exploitative people rack up the most vulnerable people rack up these huge debts and then you have privileged people like uh, Philip Davies sort of arguing to keep them in business is there any sort of like honourable argument to justify the delay? I really don't think so. But also I think the thing, like even looking at from a political perspective, like I think that it is kind of like nearly comical. I remember a few days before that all went down, I had a drink with a Conservative MP kind of talking about the party and what was going on and whatever. And obviously everything was bleak and doom and gloom and fighting and whatever. And like genuine coincidence, we got chatting about Tracy Crouch and he said, you know, but she, like she is one of the like 
only like properly good ministers and I'm so happy she's there and he seems really happy and it's really great. And then like literally three days later, I was like, no, no, the one thing you liked oh. <laughs> about what's going on is dead now. So poor Tracy, but at least maybe her brother Peter will treat her. <laughs> maybe go on a nice family holiday. How long did you wait to make that joke? <laughs> Don't bully me, Marie. I can I can report you now. <laughs> well, actually, no, you can't. Well, not quite yet. But, uh, but actually, you know, on that topic, and I think that's what you were guessing at, that report has recently come out on uh, bullying and harassing in the Houses of Parliament by MPs and by senior members of staff. And that's kind of, like, made a lot of waves recently. And I think this is kind of going to be an ongoing conversation for for a long time, hopefully, because I think this is something that has needed to be talked about for a long time. What do you make of it? I mean, you're writing a book about gossip in Parliament at the moment. Thank you. <laughs> Checks in the post. <laughs> is this a big issue in the house? Because it seems like a place where alcohol is subsidised, everybody works crazy hours, everybody is like, you know, all these crazy tiny, mini little power structures where people just work for certain MPs. It doesn't seem the most healthy place for uh, for people to be working. I know it's really not. And I feel like, you know, even as someone who's just kind of been, I guess, you know, like working around Parliament for about three and a half years now, I have heard absolutely countless stories of MPs being absolutely awful to their staff. So, you know, some of them, you know, there's the sexual harassment stuff, which I think we've talked about before. But like, even beyond that, just like staffers being treated horribly and there's a whole range as well I think which is quite interesting so I think obviously you have the people who are genuine sort of like awful human beings like genuine you know sociopaths and he treat their staff appallingly. But also I think quite a lot of them, so that's kind of, yeah, mixed in with the fact that... So MPs get elected and they, you know, a lot of them will never have been in management positions or anything. And so they're kind of expected to hire people and form an office and kind of, you know, start doing that and kind of run effectively this small business, you know, with anything from one to four staffers. So, you know, they have no idea how to do it. But also because there's effectively no HR in Parliament, so even if there are problems, and occasionally, you know, it could be problems I think could be solved if a third party could get involved and say, okay, you know, like both sides have issues on this, but that does not exist. And also staffers are directly hired by their MP, so not by the party, not by the House of Commons. They're just hired by their MP. So and you know, and I've heard that from so many people before, like you know, friends or otherwise. Like if there's a problem, even the smallest of problem with the MP, the problem is like, who do you talk to? So there's definitely one problem about, you know, the nature, I think, of MPs, and I think that's ultimately going to be quite hard to change. But also what can be changed and should change really quickly is just, you know, how you deal with that. Just, yeah, HR, just get, you know, Brenda from HR, get her to come down from Swindon (laughs) and she'll probably sort it out. But surely you have a Speaker of the House. They're in charge of the House of Commons. Surely if there's any problems, you would just go to John Burko and he would solve them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, given that there's been many allegations of bullying against John Burko as well, then he's not exactly the best person to talk about. And actually, you know, with that being said, I think that was really frustrating. So when the Cox report came out... Very quickly. No, no, I think, you know, part of the report did say that, you know, all of this happened basically with the knowledge of the Speaker of the House, and that was a massive issue. And so they didn't quite name Burko, but everyone knew who they were talking about. Very, very quickly, it just kind of turned among MPs as a debate, effectively saying, you know, John Burko, yay or nay, which is really not <laughs> this report coming out saying, you know, these there are these, like, massive structural issues that touch on, you know, so many, like, vulnerable people and everything. And then MPs suddenly went do you like the speaker? Because I don't like the speaker, but I like the speaker, which is infuriating. So John Burko, he's so he's got a reputation for being bully, being difficult to work with, 
But he's also got a reputation for being sort of quite anti-Brexit and will really pull up the government if it tries to do any sort of like sneaky... <laughs> sneaky Brexit deals. I don't know what the technical term for <laughs> sneaky Brexit deals. So if a lot of Labour people are wary of getting rid of him because they kind of think he is, he's got the authority in the House they can trust. So they want to keep him as Speaker of the House until Brexit is sorted. Is that a sort of a, a deal that is a good deal to make to keep somebody who is a bully in that position of authority just because we like his opinions on Brexit? I don't think so. And I think, you know, like for a number of reasons. The first one being that Actually, you know, the thing about Burko is that, you know, to be fair to him, I think he does really value the kind of like power of the House of Commons and the power of backbenchers and kind of scrutiny by the backbenchers of the executive. And I think that is important, obviously. But also, you know, I think that some of the people who said they wanted Burko to stay, their argument was effectively, oh, you know, we think that whoever becomes Speaker instead, if that were mm. to happen, would just get tricked by the government and the government could get their way on everything. And I'm not sure that's the case. You know, like the next Speaker will probably be Lindsay Hoyle, who's currently the chairman of Ways and Means. Um, and, you know, the one who already does the budget and everything. And I, he's been Deputy Speaker for a long time. You know, that is someone who knows what he's doing. Or even, you know, Eleanor Lang or like any of the Deputy Speakers who, if they were to become Speaker, like, this is not their first radio. So I think, A, yeah, this is, I think, quite insulting to the Deputy Speakers and like, the potential people who could do it. But also, I don't know, part of me is just like, you know what? Fine, yeah, OK, it is bad timing. Burko is good in terms of, like, debates and, again, kind of, you know, giving backbenchers more power. But also, you had years and years and years and years to deal with billing in Parliament because we all know this has basically always been going on. And yeah, it's bad timing, but also, yeah, it just sucks to be you. In that case, just from the bottom of my heart, sucks to be you. (laughs) And I could have dealt with it and you didn't, so, yeah. But do you not think, right, so Parliament... It's full of arseholes. The sort thing of the personality to be an MP, to be a minister, to rise high up. You're an arsehole. You're probably not very nice. Why not just have somebody who's a bit of an arsehole, but is your arsehole? And John Burko is the Remainers, Labour Party's arsehole at the moment. So maybe, you know, he's our guy. Do you not know what to say to that? I feel like you've mostly <laughs> just said the word arsehole quite a lot, which is... A bit disconcerting, but I don't know. So I would actually push back against that a bit. Like I do genuinely think that when you meet them, you do realise that I would say a majority of MPs are fundamentally decent people. But it's more like, again, you know, and I think that's the thing that keeps coming back, is the structures, like, it, it is the power of structures within Parliament and the way everything works that I think can turn people into their worst selves. So uh, basically, getting John Burko to chair a response to bullying would be a bit like Roman Polanski making a, a movie about me. Me too, which is actually happening. <laughs> I want to die. <laughs> so speaking of being bullied, um, poor old Northern Ireland has been in the news yet again with uh, discussions on what to do about a backstop. There's still... Oh, a- I'm, I'm going to have to stop you right there. Like, we have just run out of time. I'm really sorry that like, we can't actually talk about this. What are you talking about? This is, this is a podcast. We can go on forever. Like, this is really... No, we po- can't. No, we can't. Like, can you not hear this? I think, like, the fire alarm has just started. Like, we just really need to leave the building, like, now. <laughs> well, will anybody understand where Northern Ireland is? <laughs> just no Brexit. I can't do Brexit anymore. Just such a shame that as we're about to, you know really get in on Brexit again you know we just have to leave because there's a murderer on the loose in the building fine it'll be we'll just talk about it next week (laughs) I actually hope I get murdered (laughs) 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Our big topic this week is homelessness. Nothing like a nice cheery subject to celebrate the return of changing politics. Yep, it's not fun. But as the nights get longer and colder, the increasing number of people out there on the streets is something that we just can't ignore. So today, we're going to look at how bad the situation is, see exactly who is falling through the cracks of the system, try to work out some of the stats around homelessness, and look at ways we can all work together to alleviate this serious and growing problem in the UK. To start with, it's worth thinking about who becomes homeless in Britain in 2018. Yeah, there's a kind of assumption that somebody is homeless because they must have done something wrong. And often being homeless is sort of seen as a life sentence. But the fact is that actually a lot of homeless people are able to get off the streets and no one knows this better than Melanie Otten, who's the MP for Great Grimsby and who was homeless when she was 17. We caught up with her and asked her about her experience. When I was 17, I found myself without anywhere to stay and had to rely on a local charity called Doorstep in Grimsby to find me somewhere to live. Uh, And I ended up in a shared house with other young women um, who had had similar family breakdowns or, you know, for whatever reason, didn't have anywhere to stay. Uh, And it was a a real lifeline. Um, That charity helped me um, access benefits. Um, They enabled me to carry on going to college Um, and, of course, provided me with a roof over my head. So in one way, that's inspiring, but in another way, it's incredibly upsetting. If Mel was homeless today, chances are that she wouldn't be able to stop the spiral and get off the streets, and the people of Great Grimsby would be denied a really good MP. I think we all assume that there are systems in place to make sure that becoming homeless just doesn't happen except in extreme circumstances. So it's really unsettling to think that it could happen to anyone. Well, actually, yeah, it's scarily easy to become homeless. We spoke to Mel about how precarious the situation is. One of the stories that stays with me, when I first got this job, I went to, I visited lots of homelessness charities. um, And in London, I uh, had a a visit with one of the big charities. And they were saying that with their outreach work, they'd met a woman who was um, just bedding down for the night at one of the big railway stations. um, And she... Um, 
was just on her laptop finishing off her tax return. And the reason for her homelessness is because she was self-employed. Uh, she didn't have a permanent job. Um, you know, it was based on uh, you know, part of the gig economy, which so many people are reliant on now. Uh, and that precarious element around work, I think, is a big driver. Um, and affordability of properties, particularly in, in the capital, but in cities around the country. So it really could be anyone. But those who are most at risk are people who have chaotic lifestyles, so perhaps who do have drug and alcohol issues, or who have mental health issues. Um, and perhaps that comes as a result of um, a family breakdown, you know, marital breakdown. Um, and people who are single are always going to struggle when it comes to accessing um, social rental properties. Um, because when it comes to priority lists, they tend to be at the bottom. So just how bad is the situation right now in the UK? It is not good. Here's Mel again with some really harrowing stats. If we're talking about rough sleeping, and homelessness covers everything, it's not just rough sleeping, but, but that is the most visible element of it and probably the most heartbreaking element of it. We're looking at around 4,800 people across the country on any given night. I dispute that figure to some degree because I know that's only based on spot checks on particular nights. So if I look at my local area and the uh, local outreach charity there, they will tell me that official government statistics say that there are about 20 uh, rough sleepers in my borough. But they will tell me, well, we know of at least 50 to 60. So if that is replicated across the whole of the country, then I think that that figure would be a lot higher. Um, since 2010, we have seen it rise by 180%, which is just phenomenal. It's huge. And it's, I think the, the problem has been that the government, when they uh, came in in 2010, they didn't see it as an issue because such a lot of effort had been put in through uh, the, the 2000s to drive homelessness down and to support those people who were vulnerable and at risk of homelessness. And so in some respects, I think the government thought it was job done. And so we've seen through austerity all of the support measures that were in place, whether it's through local authorities, well, mainly through local authorities, actually, because they are the organisations that tend to uh, fund homelessness charities in their local areas. But that combined with the impact on welfare um, and a reduction in access to social homes um, has made this problem uh, ever more visible and evident. But those stats are only according to crisis. What are the government's statistics on homelessness? Well, that's part of the problem. The government does not keep good records on homelessness at all. Government doesn't have a measure or a facility to collect this information centrally. So there are local authority statistics, but there is nothing combined and there is nothing certain. So I know, for example, in my constituency, that um, a homeless man uh, was killed this year. And people who are rough sleeping are so much more vulnerable to attack. This is not just dying because of extreme weather conditions or health issues that people might have. We, you know, People who are rough sleeping notoriously have much poorer health, as you might expect. But they are very vulnerable to attacks. Uh, you know, If they are sleeping in a town centre or sleeping in a city centre, if people have been out... Uh, you know, unfortunately, they might be targeted. 
um, which is a, a dreadful cruelty. Um, when I've asked the government about this, there hasn't really seemed to be any um, acknowledgement or recognition that they should be doing more about it. Um, we'll see some discussion, I suspect, over winter, but this isn't just an exclusively winter issue. Until you know the scale of the problem, you can't do much to combat it. But we do have good news on this. We're joined by Maeve McLenahan from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Maeve, could you tell us about the work you've been doing on this project? For the past uh, almost nine months now, we've been working on a project with networks of journalists all across the country where we've been trying to track how and when people are dying homeless in the UK. Uh, because back in around February, I, I started out with quite a simple question, which was, you know, is this getting worse? Is it getting better? And when trying to answer that question, I came to the realisation that actually nobody counts how and when people are dying homeless um, anywhere in the UK. And so that was something that we wanted to, to raise awareness of and to try and fill the evidentiary void that existed at that time. And so, but like, how come it is that those figures had not been counted? And, you know, have, have you spoken to officials? Have they kind of explained why, you know, you were the ones to do that and not someone kind of internally? Yeah, so I spoke to, to loads of people. Um, you know, I called coroner's offices, hospitals, uh, local government, central government, police. Um, and everybody seemed to think somebody else would probably hold that information. So they said, we don't count, but, but probably try these people and they probably do. It just seemed to be something that was falling through the gaps, really. You know, obviously there, there are death records and the coroner's office, um, you know, holds death records for people, but there's no kind of tick box that notes how and when people are, are specifically dying if they're homeless. So some coroners might have been recording that, but not everybody was. So we had to do a kind of jigsawing together, a piece of work that, that put together sources from, from people that worked on the ground in charities, some places, uh, you know, some councils might have been keeping their own ad hoc lists. It was really a kind of patching things together as and when we could. What data did you end up finding that how many homeless people have died? Since the 1st of October last year, which is when we started counting, we found that there's been at least 484 people that have died homeless all across the UK. But that is likely to be sadly a, an underestimate. As, as I explained, these are just, you know, people that we've heard of, that we've managed to collect the names and the details of. There's probably many, many more people than that. But still, it's, you know, a shocking total. What was the age range of people who um, died homeless? In our database, it ranged from 18 as the youngest up to 94, um, which I believe is in Northern Ireland. So a kind of really shocking range. But in some cases, you know, people in their 80s that had died sleeping rough on the streets. And was there any patterns that you found that you were surprised by? The fact that there wasn't a pattern was surprising in a sense. You think that, you know, that this one type of person that people consider as homeless. But actually there was a whole range of people. There was uh, a quantum physicist that died after he'd been living in his car. There was, you know, mothers of four that that died while, you know, they made kind of small gardens in the patches where they were sleeping rough. There was a whole kind of range of things. And I went to some of the funerals of some of these people and met their loved ones. And it was really interesting to see that these weren't isolated, solitary figures. They were people that were surrounded by, by loved ones. But 
for whatever reason, were um, found themselves homeless. And so now you've got all this data, actually, that have you spoken since to more, like, let's say, local authorities or the government, or, like, are there any plans for, basically, people who are not you to kind of, like, start actually keeping track of this? Since we started our project, the Office for National Statistics actually got in touch and were using our database to come up with their own methodology for looking at estimates of um, homeless deaths. And they've said they're going to produce experimental figures on those later this year, which is really important because, like I said, there was just this, this void in the evidence. People didn't know if and when it was happening. Um, so that's really important. And now in Scotland, the similar body there is looking to do the same thing. So that's been hugely gratifying to see people you know, taking this seriously. We've also seen some councils and local safeguarding boards saying that off the back of this reporting, um, they're going to do their own reviews into what's going on in their area um, to try and get to the bottom of it, to try and learn lessons. That's gratifying too. And that, that came out of the fact that we worked with a network of local journalists to get this story out. So while we worked on the national story, we had reporters in Leeds, in Brighton, in Bristol, in Birmingham, all across the country, in Belfast, Glasgow, writing about what was happening in their areas, which meant that then, you know, their local councils really understood, you know, how they fit into this national picture. Were people listening who are, you know, finding out more about it and upset by, you know, uh, the statistics, what advice would you give for people who want to help? There's a whole range of things you can do. I mean, one in terms of tracking and commemorating people that have died, we, we are still collating names and stories on that at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. So if you do know somebody and you don't think they're in our database, um, then please do let us know. But I, I think calling on these councils and safeguarding adult boards to review, properly review deaths when they happen so that lessons can be learnt. And then, you know, I really heard from around the country is that often it's, it's the simple things. It's, you know, volunteering some time to help serve some hot food somewhere or just talking to people and giving them the time of day when you pass them. I think it can be all too easy to, especially with, with people sleeping rough, to kind of walk by and think that person is beyond help or nothing I can do. But I think what I've learned is that, you know, people are saved sometimes by individuals' um, actions and sometimes just a kind word can, can help somebody through a tough time. So, yeah, there's a whole range of things. It's sometimes a quite a confusing thing whether to give money or to give food or whether it's better to give to a charity. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've definitely heard different schools of thought on this. I've gone and talked to quite a lot of people in the sector and some people... You know, take that that view that um, if people are struggling with substance abuse issues, that could be temptation. Maybe it's better to give to a soup kitchen or someone that can help. Streets Link, for example, that's one of the easiest things you can do is just alert Street Link that somebody is there and they can come out and do their own assessment. But then there's others that take that, you know, the view that people can make their own choices and we don't want to make assumptions about people's backgrounds. So... I personally, I have not got my head around what the right thing is to do there. I think sometimes I take it on an ad hoc basis as to the the kind of situation as I see it at that moment. But I'm not sure there is an, an easy answer. I'm sure people would argue passionately either way. Thank you so much. That was super interesting and yeah, yeah. incredibly depressing. I know, it's so grim, isn't it? But thank you for covering it. 
So download the Streetlink app. So it's an app that allows you to send information about the location and well-being of rough sleepers to the local council, where they can send out people who can help them. It's a way to make a tangible difference for homeless people in your area. So that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to like and subscribe on Twitter, Facebook, and of course, the Matt Hancock app. Seriously, guys, let's keep that platform alive. We're the only ones who can now. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Au revoir. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.